The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Our Father, we, we come into your presence tonight. We thank you for the word that we've already heard. We thank you for, for the encouraging message. And Lord, we pray that as we go through this weekend, that you would draw near to us, that you would help us to have open hearts and open minds to your word. And, and Father, we not only want to be equipped to be better counselors, we want to be sanctified in the truth ourselves. And so we pray that you would use this not only to equip us, but also to help us grow in our relationship with you. And Father, as we come to you tonight, I, I feel my own sense of, of weakness and just pray for your help. Father, how we need your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that he would indeed be the Lord and giver of life tonight. We pray that he would uh, speak through the word. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a lot to try to cover. And so um, trying to think through what we should focus on and not focus on, just trust that the Lord will help us. Um, we're going to talk in this session about uh, the past turning Satan's playground into a battleground. And as we think about counseling, as we think about what our goals are, our goals are, are manifold, aren't they? We have a number of different goals as we're sitting down with somebody and trying to help them. And those goals, though, are all interrelated. We want to see people either come and put their faith in the Lord Jesus or or deepen their faith in Christ, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, having uh, Christ dwell in our hearts by faith and to be strengthened in that. We also want to see growing out of that deepening faith a manifestation of greater reliance upon God's Word and obedience to that Word by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the very kind of thing Steve was talking about as he talked about Jill in the previous hour. That, that reliance, though, on God's Word and the obedience to God's Word often means that we go through a process of unlearning lies that we've believed. So learning to rely on God's Word and, and obeying God's Word is also going to manifest itself in unlearning the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil especially as we increasingly live in the light of God's truth. And so we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're learning to take every thought captive. And so when our thoughts are actually governed by God's truth, then our affections, our emotions are increasingly more properly aligned. Our wills are properly motivated and we can experience change. And all of this transformation that we're shooting for, that we're aiming for, that we're hoping for, that we're praying for as we help people through God's Word, all of this transformation takes place by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ and by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I loved it when Steve said, we're the last stop. All right? Well, there's a reason why, in a sense, we end up being the last stop, and that is because counseling is not a therapeutic exercise. It is an exercise 
in the process of discipleship and sanctification. That's what we're ultimately trying to help people do, is to grow as disciples of Christ and to grow in the process of sanctification. Now, when it comes to the past, the past obviously plays a very huge part in this process. Because, as we heard and will hear, many, many people come to us and and they're struggling, and one of the things that they're struggling with is their past. They are uh, oftentimes emotionally handicapped because of their past. They have believed lies regarding their past, and they frequently fail to look at their past through any kind of gospel lens. And so... Some people who come to us who have listened so long to the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil in relation to their past come to us full of all kinds of entanglements, all different buckets, and those can prove to be Satan's playground. Now, what we're going to do is, and some of this is obviously going to overlap with some of the things Steve has said, but first of all, I want us to consider the fact that memory plays such a huge part of biblical faith. The first thing that just struck me this, uh, this past week, looking forward to the conference and looking forward to being here, um, is it occurred to me that one of the things that we see in the Bible is God remembering the past plays a huge part of our faith. In fact, you can take a lexicon, which is, for you younger people, a large book with scripture references in it, or you can use your Logos program um, and just type in or look up the word remember and remembered, and what you end up seeing is that this is used literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times regarding God. God is constantly said to remember something. In fact, the whole Exodus event, Exodus 2.24, it says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So the whole redemption of the Exodus actually is rooted in God remembering his covenant. Exodus 6.5, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. And this, this is a theme that you see literally dozens of times in the Old Testament, but you also see times where God's people ask God to remember. Which is really an interesting thing considering the fact that God is omniscient and really technically never forgets anything. But there is something that is striking about that, and there are also times, by the way, where God's people ask God not to remember certain things. Remember not the sins of my youth. So, God's people 
are also continually exhorted to remember and not forget. And I have a number of passages there that should all be in your notes. And what you see over and over and over again is God's people are exhorted to, on the one hand, remember, and on the other hand, not to forget. And in fact, when you go through Deuteronomy, and I have the, the passages there, what you see is God exhorting his people through Moses to remember when you were slaves and remember the days in Egypt and remember how I brought you out by an outstretched arm. Peter, of course, says that it is not a problem for him to stir up his readers' memories Um, We're told twice in Revelation, remember, remember from where you have fallen. And so we we have to remember this, and that is that remembering and forgetting in the Bible is not simply a matter of the power of mental recall. Remembering and not forgetting in the Bible are ethical issues. It's because when God's people do forget or they fail to remember that they begin to go astray. And then, and Steve touched on this, and that is monuments help us remember God's past acts of faithfulness and instill confidence for God's future faithfulness. And so God tells His people not only remember, 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 don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, but He also tells them, There are certain things that you're supposed to do to set up as memorials to help you remember. In other words, God actually um, acknowledges, in a sense, our weakness by giving us things. So, for instance, the Passover is instituted as a memorial day to remember God's mighty act of deliverance of His people at the Exodus. You'll remember in the book of Joshua, they are to set up stone altars, and those stone altars are stones of remembrance so that when your children say, what are these stones here for? You can tell them this story about God. Even our observance of the Lord's Supper. Remember Jesus' words. Do this in remembrance of me. We have a memorial meal that causes us to remember what Christ has done for us on Calvary. I remember years ago, I was reading a little book called The Lord's Supper by Ernest Keevan, and I'll never forget reading this simple line. It is astonishing that God should have to tell us to remember His Son's death. And yet it's true, isn't it? And so we are told repeatedly to remember. We're given monuments to help us to remember. Those monuments actually are monuments of God's faithfulness, what God has done for us in the past. What that is designed to do then is to instill a confidence in God and His trustworthiness and His covenant faithfulness for the present and for the future. My former pastor, when we lived in Portland, was Jim Andrews, wrote a marvelous book called Polishing God's Monuments by Shepherd's Press, 
uh, and Jim would always remind us in preaching regularly, is that those acts of faithfulness that God does for you are now monuments, and you need to polish those monuments because it's remembering what God has done for you in the past that instills confidence in the future. Stephen Charnock, the old Puritan, wrote, Remembrance is the chief work of a Christian. And so, we see that the power of memory and the call to remember is a significant part of our Christian faith. But that brings us to the second point, which is the past ends up being one of Satan's most effective tools to hamstring God's people. And so, on the one hand, we have this marvelous, as it were, biblical theology of remembering, and it is positive, it's good, it's healthy, it's vibrant, but we also know that there's a flip side to it, and that is that the enemy of our souls often can take the past and take the memories of the past and use them to hamstring us in our usefulness as God's people. Now, how does, how does Satan do this? Well, we're not going to exhaust his schemes here, but there are a few things that I want to bring up. Turn over in, the, in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Satan can use distorted memories to hamstring us. Starting at verse 1, it says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat. Now, let me just suggest to you that the fundamental problem in verse 4 with the sons of Israel is actually short-term memory loss. Okay? Because God had just acted, and He acted in a, in, in a very demonstrative way that was unmistakable, and yet right on the heels of God judging them in His anger, they turn around and say, now who's going to give us meat to eat? Now, by the way, the rabble also, in a sense, stir up God's people. Now, verse 5, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now, I would suggest to you that the sons of Israel in this condition were actually not only sinning against God and dishonoring God, but they were completely useless in the purposes of God. Now, notice what what they do in verse 5. It is absolutely remarkable, and that is they are thinking back to their days in Egypt when they were slaves. 
and when they were commanded to make bricks without straw, when, the, when Pharaoh was killing the male children, awful, horrible, oppressive days. And you know what? There they are in the wilderness. I was in Israel in March, and, and, and we were uh, on the Jordan side, and I started to have a little bit of sympathy for the Israelites as they grumbled because you look out on those plains and you think, you know what? This is barren, right? It's barren. But God had not left them without a witness. They had manna every morning. And here they are in the wilderness. And you know what they're doing? They're saying, you know what? We have such fond memories of Egypt. Fresh fish. Free. <laughs> you know, it, it seems a little peculiar to me. Wow, we were slaves who ate free of charge. Now, <clears throat> to remember is not just recalling something. It actually reflects a state of mind, doesn't it? You could make the same argument about Naomi, by the way, in the book of Ruth, as Steve was mentioning in the previous hour when she says, I went out full and I've come back empty. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Remembering in a distorted way is, is actually a frame of mind, a state of mind. And so if you look at this, the gratitude is gone. Their confidence in the future is gone. Verse 6, it says, now our appetite is gone. Literally, the text says, our souls are shriveled. There's nothing at all to eat except this manna. So these distorted memories can dis derail our hearts. And oftentimes, we look back on the past because of discontent in the present, and there is a distortion of the past in our own minds that make us more discontent with the present, and Satan can use that to derail us from being useful to others. Obviously, one of the main tools that Satan uses is painful Memories of our personal failures. Satan can actually use these things to bring about incredible despair to people. Um, just, I'm reading through um, Grace Abounding again by Bunyan. And a um, number of things Bunyan says that, that are just so striking. He says, he says suddenly this conclusion was fastened on my spirit that I had been a great sinner and that now it was too late for me to look for heaven. For Christ would not pardon my transgressions. While I was thinking about this and fearing that it was so, I felt my heart sink in despair, concluding that it was too late. Therefore, I resolved in my mind that I would go on in sin. For thought I, if the case be thus, my state is surely miserable." Miserable if I leave my sins, miserable if I follow them, I can but be damned, and if I must be so, I might as well be damned for many sins as for few. He says later, I was in great distress. I went up and down 
bemoaning my sad condition, counting myself far worse than a thousand fools for having put off salvation this long and spending so many years in the sins that I had done. And I cried out, oh, that I had turned sooner. Oh, that I had turned seven years ago. It made me so angry with myself to think that I should have nothing to do but trifle away my time until my soul and heaven were lost. Satan can can convince us that that we are so, so bad that we are beyond redemption. There are people that that, that believe that they have sinned and their sin is so deep that they are beyond the ability for God to save them. But what about uh, the child of God? The child of God is also susceptible to this, thinking that their past is so bad that their assurance is continually hindered. Can I be a real Christian? I mean, I, I, I can't believe the things that I've done. And in fact, would we not say that the sins that we've committed as Christians have been even worse, darker, more heinous, than the sins that we've committed as Christians. And sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, you know what, God has shown me so much grace. He's done so many great things. I can't believe that I've done the things that I've done. And therefore, I conclude I must not be a child of God. Satan can use our past to bring about spiritual paralysis with a sense of false guilt, which again makes us useless in being able to help others. Do you know what happens when you are obsessed with the magnitude of past sins and then derailed with a loss of assurance? Who are you focused on? Well, yourself. How how much good can you actually do to anybody around you? You can't do any good. I knew a man when I was in seminary. He actually introduced me to the Puritans and, and he was a wonderful man in many ways. But he would get into these, typically when he was reading Matthew Mead, the almost Christian discovered. And by the time he was done, he would be absolutely convinced that his sins were too great and that he was in fact a hypocrite and was not saved. And he would go into this melancholy, this depression. And his wife would become concerned and he wouldn't be ministering to his kids and his studies would, would uh, be neglected. And we have to understand that Satan oftentimes will, will insinuate to our minds that our past is so, uh, it is beyond redemption. Our past is irremediable, irremediable. Now, painful memories of personal hurts. Jim has a a session on that, and I'm sure Steve will talk about that. And Satan obviously can use past hurts towards us to stir up bitterness, and that bitterness can defile many people, as Hebrews 12, 15 tells us. Now, I want to focus on, for ourselves and for the people that we're trying to help, how to use past sins to magnify God's mercy in the gospel. So this is a big issue. People struggle with their past. They struggle with guilt 
and even depression because of their past. They think of the magnitude of their sins and they feel weighed down, they feel burdened. But I want to suggest to you, I want to suggest to you first of all that the goal in helping somebody like that is not to get them to forget their past. I don't think that that actually is a biblical goal. I don't think it's a biblical goal to actually get people to act as if their past never happened. It's not a biblical goal to get people to the point where, um, where, they, where they feel good about that which was really bad. I think, for instance, of, of a woman in our church who had an abortion. You talk about a painful painful memory. There is no way that she could or even should come to the place where she feels good about that which was bad. Even understanding, as we'll look at tomorrow, seeing these things in the, in the scope of God's sovereignty, not even coming to the place where, where, where you no longer have any kind of twinge of conscience because you go, well, you know, God's sovereign and, uh, you know, and so this was obviously according to his plan. But just as sure as the goal is not to just get her to feel good about something that was really bad, it's not the goal, the goal also is not to get her to just become indifferent to those memories and act as if that stuff really never happened. In fact, I think that the Bible would compel us to think differently about our sinful past. Now, the minute I say that, I know that there are at least a couple of passages that come to mind where people say, well, you know, forgetting is good. One passage, of course, is Jeremiah 31, 34, which is quoted in Hebrews 8, 12, which is the new covenant. And what does God promise to do for us in the new covenant? I will forgive your sins and your, or your iniquities and your sins I will, what? Remember no more. All right? And so people say, now hold on a second. You're going you're gonna to tell me that you're, we're supposed to use past sins in a productive way? Well, God forgets them. Well, let me just remind us of a few things. First of all, God is truly omniscient. He knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future. I would actually go so far as to say that God is so sovereign that he is actually just working out all things after the counsel of his will. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future, and he knows the future because he's planned it. So when the Bible talks about God not remembering our sins, it is not as if the omniscient God who possesses all comprehensive knowledge of all things real and possible can even begin to say, well, I, I don't even remember. What did you do? I don't even You're such a good person. I mean, I can't even think of one wrong thing you've ever done. That's not what it means. To not remember our sins in Jeremiah 31, 34 means that God does not bring up our sins again as a point of contention or condemnation. 
This is the message of Psalm 103 in verse 12. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's the message of Micah 7.19. The truth that God remembers our sins no more is not meant to comfort us because God developed some sort of amnesia The the truth is supposed to comfort us because what it means is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God does not do to us what we frequently do with each other. I don't know about you, but one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is when you sit down with a couple, and maybe you've sat down with them six, seven, eight times, maybe more, and every single argument that they have, as they start to explain what happens, both of them have to go all the way back to 1986. Right? And it's just a series of, you know, and... And I've watched husbands and wives both look at each other and say, I thought you forgave me for that. Oh, well, I, I, I have. Well, you're bringing it up. Well, I'm bringing it up because, well, what they're doing is they're bringing it up to, in a sense, bite at them, right? To, to pinch their conscience, to make them, just to kind of remind them of, uh, you know, who took the moral high ground and who was down in the gutter. Well, the fact is God never does that with us. God never brings up our sins, throws them back up in our face as a matter of condemnation or even a matter of contention. This does not mean, however, that there are not lessons for us to learn from past sins. And so, let's say that you have a a child, an adolescent, teenager, and they commit some very serious, grievous sin. They come to you, you extend forgiveness to them. You tell them that, that, that you obviously you forgive them and um, you encourage them to make sure they seek God's forgiveness, but that does not mean that at some opportune time you don't use this as a point of trying to teach them about certain character issues and wisdom issues for the future. You don't rub their face in it like you would a dog that's urinated on the carpet for the tenth time. But you say, you know, I know you don't like to talk about this, but you remember when this happened, can we talk about the decisions that you made that led up to that? Because if, if you don't get a grasp on those things now, what's going to happen to you when you're an adult and you're faced with similar situations? Okay. So when God says he remembers our sins no more, it is not warrant for us to say, I want to just forget my past. Well, what about Philippians chapter 3? Well, turn over there, if you would. Very famous passage. Philippians chapter 3. Now, let me just ask a question, because I know most of you know your Bibles. What is Paul talking about in Philippians chapter 3? The first part of the chapter? His past. His past. Both his self-righteous and wretchedly sinful past, 
and also his past as a persecutor of the church. All right? Keep that in mind. So Paul says in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained it. I think that obtaining it there is a reference to a knowledge of Christ and being conformed to his sufferings and in the resurrection. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, many people take that text, forgetting what lies behind, and kind of lift it out of its context as warrant for, you know what, just forget your past. But I don't think that that's what Paul is actually saying. Not only do you have the larger context of him talking about his past, but in verse 13, what Paul says is, this one thing I do, I press forward, I strain on, and then what he's describing for us in verse 13 is what that pressing on looks like. Well, what does it look like? Forgetting the stuff that's behind and stretching for the stuff that lies ahead. And so that one thing captures Paul's ambition, his singleness of purpose. So one commentator puts it like this, Paul permits nothing to divert him from his course. His aim is specific and defined. What Paul's describing for us in Philippians 3 is, is a race and a runner who is so determined not to be looking over his shoulder, um, but rather striving for the finish line. I don't know if any of you are runners or ran track in high school, but what will what, make you actually lose a half step, a step, a step and a half, looking back to see where that other guy is, right? You can only do that if you've got about 20 steps on him, right? And, but you're going to lose a step if you look back. I think that what Paul is saying is he's not talking about his pre-Christian life He's not saying, you know what, I forget all the bad stuff that I did and I just look forward to the stuff that's ahead. And the reason is, is because he's already talked about all the stuff that lies behind. I think that Paul's focus here in saying forgetting what lies behind is I, I, don't, I don't run this race continually looking back on all of my achievements of Christian service. I don't, I don't run this race, in a sense, on the laurels of everything that I've accomplished up to this point. In fact, Peter O'Brien makes the comment, he says, he does not specifically describe his experience as a persecutor, however much he may have wished for other reasons to forget that. Now, what Paul's saying here is not that and I don't ever think about what God's done through me, because... 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I've labored more than all of them, but it's not me, the grace of God in me. Romans 15, he celebrates those things. But A.T. Robertson actually hits the nail on the head. He says, the point is not that Paul's ashamed of his past career as a Christian, but simply that he doesn't lull himself to ease and relaxation of effort because of past achievements. 
In other words, Paul says, you know what? What God has for me is still ahead of me, and I'm pressing on towards it. I, I don't sit there and continually pat myself on the back of all the good things that I've done. You don't get anywhere doing that. And so the text doesn't mean that we forget the past. It's talking about how we run the race that's set before us. So, how do we help people use their past to magnify the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? Well, I want us to consider two passages. The first is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Or chapter 1, sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now there's a lot in this passage that we don't have time to unpack. But I think that the main points will be, will be clear enough to us. Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now by the way, when he says I am, that is a present tense verb. Okay? Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now as Paul reflects on his past, notice there is no hiding of his past. In fact, his description of his past sins is very, very specific, is it not? Notice he says that he was a blasphemer. He was a violent aggressor. He was a persecutor. And so Paul does not just try to hide his past. And notice there's no hint whatsoever about the idea that Paul says, you know, I did a lot of bad things, but... I've learned the secret of forgiving myself. Have you ever had a, a counselee say, I just have a real hard time forgiving myself? May, may I humbly suggest that that's, that's not a biblical category. That's, um, that's a therapeutic category. You, you, you didn't, in a sense, sin against yourself. You sinned against the God of heaven. You, you sinned against people in your life. 
Now, typically what people mean when they use this language, I can't forgive myself, is, is, is that they themselves are still wrestling with guilt and they think that somehow by, by coming up with this thing of forgiving themselves that it will all go away. Notice that Paul does not do that. Rather, what Paul does is without pulling any punches about the nature of his past sins, is he turns around and he looks at those sins, but then immediately uses them to turn to the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so it is actually Paul's sins which form the backdrop to him being able to magnify the work of God in his life. Now, as Paul remembers what he did, do you think think those memories still bothered him as maybe he thought about having some arrest warrants from the elders in Jerusalem and going into a Christian home and pulling a father away from a weeping wife and children? I mean, do you think that Paul thought about Stephen's death and how he stood there and gave it his hearty amen as he watched this young man stoned to death. Do you think that some of these things still bothered Paul? And, and I think that one of the reasons why he probably uses the present tense in verse 15, I am chief of sinners, is because Paul always understood what he was. I don't think that we help people by minimizing their past. We help people by teaching them to focus on the abundance of God's mercy and grace which has been demonstrated to them in Christ Jesus. And so he remembers what he did but he then remembers it through, as it were, the lens of Jesus Christ's mercy. And then he turns around and he says, and you know what? And God is now using me as a model of how great his mercy can actually be. If if I was this bad, and I was really, really bad, and Jesus Christ came and saved me and showed me mercy and put me into service, if He did that with me, He can do that with anybody. I I end up being the poster child for, for saving, transforming grace. Paul doesn't revel in his sins. He doesn't glory in his past. It is what it is. He deals with it factually, historically. There's still that twinge of of emotional engagement. But what it is, is it's a platform for him to magnify the grace that has been shown to him in Jesus Christ. Either we believe our hymnody or we don't. And either we believe grace that is greater than all of our sin or we don't. And we help people by pointing them to the Lord Jesus and then telling them, do you know what a wonderful example you can be to others who are struggling with sin? We had this woman in our church 
delightful, delightful lady. Early in their marriage, she had left her husband, got into an, uh, an adulterous relationship. She repented, came back. It just, it, it, it haunted her and haunted her. And then she did it again. And I thought that she was uh, suicidal because the guilt, not of once but twice, was so overwhelming to her. And I told her one day, I said, you, you, you have to understand that God is going to use this in your life. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't make you less than fully culpable for what you did. But you, you actually are going to be an example of Christ's mercy and grace to the humble and the brokenhearted. And you're going to be an example of what it means to be restored by His grace. And I said, and you know what? You're going to be ministering to women who are in a similar situation as you are right now. And she looked at me and she said, I can't believe that. I don't believe that. How could God use me? And you know, she's actually one of the most effective women counselors in our church to this day because she has embraced the fullness of what it means for God to forgive her of her sins and to transform her heart. Now, um, I'm a bad time manager. Back in Minden, Nevada, where I pastor, I can just say, we're going to stop here. I'll pick it up next week. I don't have that option with you guys, all right? And so we're going to skip over 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. But let me just point out one thing about this passage that is a very, very powerful point, and that is people that think that somehow their past, what they, all the bad stuff that they've inherited from mom and dad and grandparents and all of that, Peter makes it absolutely clear that through the precious blood of Jesus, they have act, we have actually experienced our own exodus from our futile ways of life, which have been handed down to us from our forefathers. So where you came from does not determine where you're going. First Peter, and so I, I, would, just, I would just commend that to you. Now, when it, comes to, when it comes to this owning up fully to your sin, embracing the ugliness of it, and then using it as a platform to, to then extol the mercy of Christ, there's no one that does this better than Martin Luther. All right? In fact, I just read Bunyan made the comment that next to the Bible, Luther's commentary on Galatians was the best book he'd ever read. Now, Luther was... Luther was kind of over the top in some of the ways that he talked, but I think that you'll appreciate this. This is what I'm talking about. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you're a sinner, therefore you're damned, then we can answer him and say, because you say I'm a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. 
No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I take refuge in Christ, who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you cannot prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins and to plunge me into anguish, loss of faith, despair, hatred, contempt of God, and blasphemy. In fact, when you say I'm a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself so that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. You yourself are preaching the glory of God to me, for you are reminding me, a miserable and condemned sinner, of the fatherly love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only Son. You're reminding me of the blessing of Christ, my Redeemer. On his shoulders, not mine, lie all my sins. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And our, for our transgressions, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Therefore, when you say, I'm a sinner, you don't frighten me. You bring me immense consolation. <laughs> you see, Luther's point is actually very powerful, isn't it? There's no sense in which I need to hide my past. There's no sense in, in which I need to talk myself out of the, the, the darkness of my past. What I need to do is I need to remember that, that great, those great sins actually, because of the great love of God, sent His Son, and now I've been completely redeemed from those things. And so Luther said, you know what, Satan? Go ahead and remind me you're a sinner. I'm a sinner all you want. And in fact, I fully agree with you. I don't buy into the idea that my identity is no longer a sinner. I actually am a sinner. And you know what? God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. And I've been saved as a sinner. And the righteousness of Christ has clothed me as a sinner. And God has forgiven me as a sinner. And Christ is my refuge. And therefore, I have eternal life. So remind me all you want. Because every time you remind me of my great sins, it just reminds me of my great Savior. That's how we need to get people to think. And so, dealing with this woman who had the abortion, there she is. So hard for her to think about these things. And it should be. But take that as an opportunity. What, what, it, what, what happened to you and what you did, both. It's a terrible thing. But you know that Jesus Christ paid fully for your sin. Fully. You don't bear it anymore. Now, is, is it possible that God is going to work in your life so that maybe you're going to help other women who are in this situation? And the answer is yes, but you can only do that as you fully embrace the cross of Jesus. There's no sense in trying to say, well, we know we had, you had people that were giving you bad advice. And we know that you felt pressure and we know that the, all these things. No, what you did it actually was a bad thing. 
But God sent his son into the world, not for good people and not for nice people, but for bad people. Do you understand that our past sins help us revel in the glory and the power of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation? God saves murderers, and God saves perverts, and God saves thieves, and God saves blasphemers, and God saves all different kinds of sinners, and blessed be God, I don't need to clean myself up first. He comes with His saving power, and He cleanses me from all of my sins. And so we remind people, it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from all of your sins. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses your conscience before the living God. And so Stephen Charnock again says, remember of free mercies should not be attended with a forgetfulness of our own sinfulness. Remember what misery preceded the mercy. As it made the mercy the sweeter, so it will make the remembrance of it more savory. Spurgeon was great on this kind of stuff too because the reality of Christ's grace in the gospel was, was so present with him. And he says, you know, when, when you, it's, it's only as you remember that you were the guy standing on the scaffold with the noose around your neck that you're ready to rejoice over the grace of God. And so, when we think about our past sins, when our counselees think about them, there's no whitewash in the fact that those things and more made us worthy of condemnation. But if they're in Christ, past sins are forgiven sins. Our sins now are seen through the lens of Jesus Christ and His death, and we see our sins through the lens of the gospel, and we praise God for the great deliverance of it. And so Bunyan, again, I can't help but to read you a little bit of Bunyan. He says, one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness of my own heart and considering the enmity that was in me toward God, this scripture came to my mind. He made peace through the blood of his cross. By this I was made to see again and again that God and my soul were friends by this blood. Indeed, I saw the justice of God and my sinful soul could actually embrace and kiss each other through this blood. That was a good day to me. I hope I will never forget it. And so we sing the very truth that we should believe and the very truth that we should counsel. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And so as Satan makes his efforts to handicap and to, and to cripple us, we can turn those efforts around and use his insinuations and innuendo to actually point us to the grace that is greater than all our sin. Brothers and sisters, if this is not true, then the gospel's meaningless. 
give people the gospel to deal with their past. Well, my time is almost gone, and it would be futile of me to try to talk about using past sins to motivate mortification. Um, Let me just recommend to you the Ezekiel passages, which are all in New Covenant contexts, by the way. And then also I'd throw in there Deuteronomy 9.7, where God tells the children of Israel to remember their wandering in the wilderness and their waywardness. And so we sing these words sometimes. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that if we walk in the light as you're in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins and We thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we pray that you would teach us and help us to teach others what it is to use our past to glorify your rich, abundant grace which has been lavished on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we never get over the the sense of of what it means to be able to say, Christ died for me. Father, may we never forget the marvel at being able to say that He is the propitiation for all of my sins. Father, we pray that we would be men and women who marvel in the gospel and that we in turn help others marvel in the gospel. And we ask this in the name of the one who knew exactly what we were when he died for us, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org dot o-r-g